One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. The murder of a vulnerable child causes sadness and unease throughout the country. The authorities are desperate to take a violent predator off the streets before they take another life. Within two months, it looks as though they have succeeded, but things are seldom straightforward and rarely what they seem. This was a a man totally innocent of any crime who was simply arrested on the strength of, I think, the way he looked. He was a social misfit and the fact that he'd been receiving medical treatment, uh, which the police at at that time thought wrongly, uh, turned this mild-mannered man into some sort of sex fiend, which wasn't the case. They made a terrible mistake and it should they should come to a point now where they find out who the real person was welcome to season 8 episode 18 of they walk among us a podcast dedicated to uk true crime this is part one of a two-part case the second installment will be available in three days It was just after midday on Sunday, October 5th, 1975, when April Molseed asked her youngest daughter, 11-year-old Leslie, to buy a loaf of bread. Leslie's stepfather, Danny Molseed, who had been in her life since she was a year old, was working the day shift at an engineering factory. Leslie's older sister, 14-year-old Laura, was milling around the house, 
their 12-year-old brother Freddy was out playing football with his friends. The eldest of the siblings, Julie, was staying with their biological father, Fred Anderson. The Molseed family lived in a three-bedroom property on Delamere Road in the Turf Hill Estate in Rochdale, Greater Manchester. Leslie had a sickly start. She had been born with a defective valve in her heart and spent the first year of her life in hospital. As a consequence, the 11-year-old was small for her age. She looked much younger, not only because of the clothes she wore, intended for children who were five years younger, but because she had not yet grown out of her childish features. Her tight brown curls rested at her jawline, framing a tiny face, which was taken up by her bright and friendly smile. Known to her family and friends as Lel, Leslie agreed to go to the shop for her mother in exchange for a portion of the change. She pulled on her white fur-hooded blue coat over a blue woolly jumper. The jacket sat just below the waistband of her pink skirt, and her long Bay City roller socks covered her little legs as she slipped her feet into brown shoes. Leslie grabbed a navy blue canvas shopping bag on which the yellow Tweety Pie character was printed and popped the handles over her shoulder before heading out the front door around 12.30. She had been told by her mother April to be quick, but it would have been tough for Leslie to stay focused. She was friendly with everyone she met. Furthermore, her eyes may have been drawn to the dry spots beneath the parked cars as she approached Styops Lane. Her pet kitten had recently gone missing and Leslie was eager to find it. The high walls of Styops Lane marked the short journey Leslie would have taken from Delamere Road to the spa shop on Anstall Road. Soon after she turned down the lane, Leslie Molsey disappeared. By 1pm, April Molseed began to worry. Leslie had not returned home, and peering out of the window onto the estate, April expected to see her youngest daughter lost in conversation with someone she'd met along the way, but Leslie was nowhere to be seen. The Molseed siblings went out to look for their sister, and later April sent for her husband, Danny. After leaving work, he returned home and began searching the estate, calling out for Leslie and asking locals if they had seen his stepdaughter. No one had. When the family didn't track down the 11-year-old, the Greater Manchester Police were alerted and they joined the search for the petite, four-foot-tall little girl who barely weighed three stone. Until the early hours of the following morning, Leslie's loved ones searched alongside police officers. They examined neighbouring estates, narrow lanes that adjoined the streets, and overgrown fields surrounding the area. Leslie's older sister, 16-year-old Julie, and their father, Fred Anderson, also joined the search efforts. Fred later told a reporter for the Birmingham Post... 
Normally I stay away so that I don't interfere with the family, but since the police told me what happened, I have done all I can to help. Danny and I have searched and searched, and now all we can do is go over the same ground. The police conducted door-to-door inquiries and urged parents to listen carefully to their children for any information to assist the investigation. A few local youngsters witnessed Leslie walking down Styops Lane on her way to the shop, but the shopkeeper could not remember seeing Leslie. The searches continued throughout the first half of the week, but with no sign of the missing child, hope was quickly fading and fear began to spread. Early on Wednesday, October 8th, a local man, David Greenwell, had woken up in his van, parked on a lay-by off the A672 in West Yorkshire. He often slept in the vehicle and got ready on the roadside before going to work at a construction site. David needed to urinate, and to avoid being seen by passing motorists, he walked up an embankment and onto the sprawling moors for privacy. The long grass dampened his trouser legs as he sought a secluded spot. He then noticed there was something on the ground not too far ahead, out of place in the scenery. It looked like a pile of clothes, but on closer inspection he realised that it was the body of a young girl. David rushed back to his van, sped to work and alerted the police. Officers from the West Yorkshire Constabulary accompanied him back to the scene. It was obvious the child had been subjected to a violent attack. The scene was cordoned off and investigators began a fingertip search of Rishworth Moor. Bloodstains on the young girl's clothing and ground indicated that she had been killed where she was found. Her body was carefully transported to Halifax Royal Infirmary. Before a post-mortem could be conducted, the family had to be notified. April Molseed was tasked with doing what no parent should ever have to do confirming her child was the victim of an unnatural death. April wanted to brush back her daughter's curls as she had each morning before Leslie went to school, but she wasn't allowed to touch the body. The post-mortem was conducted by Professor David G, the head of the Forensic Science Lab at Leeds University. A long scar down the middle of Leslie's chest a result of heart surgery she had at three years old, paled in comparison to the injuries inflicted eight years later. It was determined that Leslie had been stabbed twelve times, once in the right side of her neck, once behind her left ear, once on the left side of the front of her chest, and nine times in the back. A knife had pierced her heart and lungs, causing catastrophic blood loss. There were no defensive wounds found on Leslie's hands or arms, 
which indicated she had been taken by surprise or attacked from behind as she lay on the ground 10 miles from home. The pathologist concluded that the murder weapon was likely a penknife measuring at least 2.5 inches. The blade was rounded on one side and sharp on the other. It was believed to be no longer than four inches, as marks around the stab wound showed that the attacker's hand or the hilt of the blade had struck the body as the blows were inflicted. While there was no physical evidence of sexual assault, semen stains were found on Leslie Molseed's underwear. Strands of yellow fibres were also found on her clothing. The investigation was a joint operation between the Greater Manchester Police and the West Yorkshire Constabulary. Leading the inquiry was the head of West Yorkshire's CID Detective Chief Inspector Jack Dip. 200 extra officers were drafted in to help with the investigation. Once word spread that Leslie's body had been found, hundreds of people eager to assist phoned in with tips. DCS Dib told reporters, To me it is a senseless, brutal killing, and there does not appear at the moment to be any sensible motive. That is why it is important that the public should come forward and give us every little bit of information. One thing seems obvious, that shortly after 1pm on Sunday, this girl was picked up in some sort of motor vehicle in the vicinity of Turf Hill Road or Delamere Road, Rochdale, and between then and Monday morning she was murdered. April Molseed was crushed by the loss of her daughter. April spoke about the medical issues Leslie had overcome during her short life and said she didn't come through all of that just for this. Leslie's oldest sister was in hospital with pregnancy complications when the news broke and the family did their best to shield her from any more stress. Countless neighbours arrived at the Molseeds residence at 11 Delamere Road to offer their condolences. Teachers at the special education High Birch School where Leslie attended fondly recalled how she never let her heart condition stop her from doing what she loved. Swimming, reading and art. Anguish turned to anger amongst many of those who knew Leslie and a petition to restore the death penalty was making the rounds throughout her estate. Leslie's stepfather, Danny, said, I can send him down for nine years or twelve years, then he will be a good boy and get remission. But one day he is going to step outside the prison gate, and as Christ is my judge, I will have my eye for an eye, and tooth for a tooth. In response to theories that Leslie might have been lured into a stranger's car, her mother stated, She was so tiny. She wore six-year-old's clothes, but she was a fighter. If someone had tried to take her, she would not have gone willingly. As investigators continued to search the moors for evidence and comb through the vegetation with a metal detector in the hopes of finding the murder weapon, 
the police urge the public to be vigilant and come forward with any information they had. DCS Dib said, This is the public response we want because this murder is apparently motiveless at this stage. So far as other children in the area are concerned, they are at risk until we find out who was responsible. It is obvious somebody has a piece of information we want. We are already getting reports from parents and from children of children being accosted. DCS Dib voiced the opinion that the killer was probably a local man who had reason to visit Delamere Road that Sunday. The officer also suspected the man they sought had previously tried to lure young girls into his car. The police were eager to trace a number of vehicles, including a bottle green Mark III Ford Cortina that had been parked in a lay-by close to where Leslie's body had been found and a suspicious yellow-coloured van which witnesses believed had been parked near where Leslie lived in the weeks prior to her death. Checks were also made with dry cleaners to see if anyone had dropped off blood-stained clothing, and over 6,000 motorists were stopped and questioned on the road close to the Turf Hill estate. In addition, the police released some sensitive information regarding the investigation in the hopes that it would lead to more tips. The CSDIB announced that the police believed they now knew the motive behind Leslie's murder. The detective said, There is no doubt in our minds that sex was the motive, but there is no evidence of sexual interference. We are now looking for a mentally deranged man with sexual deviations who is in urgent need of treatment. Now that people are aware of the sexual motives in this brutal killing, I only hope that anybody who might have been reluctant to come forward with information before will now do so. A man with sexual deviations has uncontrollable urges which could easily flare up again, irrespective of the tremendous risk he is running of being caught. He could easily strike again. Coincidentally, the day before Leslie's body was found, a six-year-old girl who had been playing near the main Manchester road at Denton 20 miles from Leslie's home had been abducted and sexually assaulted by a man driving a brown Cortina with grey primer paint on one of the doors. The child had managed to scream and escape from the car when it stopped on a quiet road close to her estate. She described the man who exposed himself as being in his thirties with a tall and thin build, short brown hair and a gold ring on his left hand. DCS Dib said, The most serious thing is that two girls have been picked up only ten miles apart and two days apart. I cannot stress just how important it is that members of the public realise how significant the incident is to the investigation. Several people in the Delamere Road area had reported seeing a similar vehicle in Styops Lane on the day Leslie went missing. One woman told the police she was confident Leslie was in the passenger seat of the car. Police urged the driver to come forward to clear themselves, but no contact was made. The next step was to follow up with known sex offenders in the area, 
and any reports of people who had targeted children in the lead-up to Leslie Mulseed's murder. One name caught their attention. Stefan Kishko. On November 5th, 1975, the police received a report from Sheila Buckley. She explained that her 13-year-old daughter Maxine and Maxine's friend Deborah Mills had been harassed by a man who allegedly exposed himself on the corner of Avassasawa and Jackson Street on October 4th. The friends had been walking home from a gathering on bonfire night when Maxine saw the same man from a month earlier walking down the street. Maxine rushed home to tell her mother. Asking their daughters to get into the car, Sheila and the mother of Maxine's friend set off to identify the flasher. The teenagers were adamant that a man in his twenties who lived with his mother on Crawford Street was the man who had exposed himself. He was later identified by the police as 23-year-old Stefan Kishko. After speaking with Maxine Buckley, the police learned that on October 3rd, several children from the Turf Hill Estate had been at the Kingsway Youth Club in Rochdale when two young girls came in screaming about a strange man they had seen. The youth club leader had gone outside to check, but no one was there. Maxine Buckley and her two friends Debbie Brown and Deborah Mills had walked the younger girls home and later relayed that they had been told the man had exposed himself to them. Three older teenage girls, Pamela Hine, Gillian Cleave and Catherine Burke, who were aged between 16 to 18, also reported a similar incident. They said they had seen a man standing in a clinic doorway with his trousers down and his genitals exposed. They ran away when he shouted obscenities at them. The man was described as being tall and broad, in his thirties with dark collar-length hair. Although there were clearly some discrepancies between the witness accounts, the police believed it was the same person. After Maxine Buckley told her mother she believed it was Stefan Kishko, officers went to speak with him. Stefan stood six feet two inches tall and weighed over 17 stone, but his childlike demeanour and soft voice gave the impression of a much smaller man. Born in Rochdale in 1952 to his Slovenian mother Charlotte and Ukrainian father Ivan, Stefan had spent his entire life in the house on Crawford Street. He had severe asthma as a child, which was believed to have been exacerbated by the nearby cotton mill where his mother worked, so he spent months at a time with relatives in Europe. Stefan was highly dependent on his mother, and as he did not have any social skills, he was perceived as strange. Stefan's school report from when he was 15 years old read in part, an average pupil who does not excel in any subject. On the physical side, he is very weak. He was an oddity and a butt for bullies, dressed differently from other children. Very kind and thoughtful, 
and bore his physical disabilities well. After leaving school, Stefan went on to complete an office studies course and subsequently got a job as a clerical assistant with the Inland Revenue in 1969. His parents were exceptionally proud of him, but tragedy struck soon after Stefan's 18th birthday when his father died suddenly in front of him. Stefan's relationship with his mother was stronger as a result of his father's death, but it meant that he isolated himself from his peers as a young adult. When the police arrived at the house on Crawford Street in November 1975 to question Stefan about the allegations of indecent exposure, he seemed shocked and dismissive. He told the police that it could not have been him because he was recovering from a long hospital stay. Stefan had badly broken his ankle in April of the previous year and required complex surgery to repair the fracture. His mother Charlotte had slept in the living room to support her son as he recovered. He had to wear a cast for almost six months and still limped a year later. In August 1975, he was hospitalised again with severe anemia. After Stefan denied he was the person who had allegedly exposed themselves to the young girls, the police left but a few weeks later they returned to ask him about his whereabouts on October 5th. He told them that he had been at the cemetery with his mother and aunt, a place he visited every Sunday. Four days before Christmas in 1975, Stefan and Charlotte Kishko were at their new home on King's Road in Rochdale. They had only been there a few weeks. At 10.30am, there was a knock at the door. Several police officers asked Stefan to accompany them to the station so he could answer some questions. Believing it was in reference to the previous allegations, Charlotte waited at home while her son went to the station. It was nine years before the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984 would ensure that people had the right to have a solicitor present during police interviews. Stefan was alone with the detectives. His interviews were not recorded. The only record of what was said was written by the interviewing officers. At first, the investigators spoke to Stefan about the indecent exposure allegations. They told him he had been identified by one of the young girls. Stefan was shocked and argued it could not have been him because he had trouble walking. He also said he had a condition that meant he didn't fancy girls. He told the officers he was receiving treatment. When Stefan had been hospitalised with anemia a few months earlier, the doctors treating him had also noticed that he had underdeveloped genitals. During the six weeks he spent in the hospital having blood transfusions, tests concluded that he had hypogonadism, a condition that meant he did not produce enough testosterone. As a result, Stefan had the sexual maturity of a prepubescent boy, had a high-pitched voice, 
and did not grow facial hair. He told the officers that he was being treated for the condition with injections. While Stefan was being questioned, other officers were searching his home and the Bronze Hillman Avenger car his mother had bought him for passing his driving test in 1971. When they were sifting through items in the vehicle, investigators found pieces of paper with license plate numbers written on them, packets of sweets, adult magazines, and balloons. In his bedroom, an officer found a semen-stained handkerchief. Stefan also had two pen knives in his pockets. He claimed one was for cleaning his car battery and the other was for cutting string. When confronted about the magazine, Stefan seemed embarrassed and said, It's those damned injections. I never did anything like this before. After learning that Stefan Kishko had been receiving hormone injections that increased his sex drive, the subject shifted. Over three days of prolonged questioning with no solicitor present, Stefan began to slowly change his story and agree with the investigators, confessing not only to the indecent exposure but to the murder of Leslie Molseed. He then asked if he could go home to his mother. After being brought back to the cells, he was allowed to see solicitor Albert Wright. It had only been 25 minutes since Stefan had signed the confession, but he exclaimed that he had lied to the police and neither exposed himself nor murdered anyone. He said he just wanted to go home and see his mother. By the time Stefan Kishko was charged with Leslie Mulseed's murder on Christmas Eve 1975, the petition calling for the execution of the little girl's killer had amassed 10,000 signatures. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. The trial began at Leeds Crown Court on July 7, 1976. The court heard that the defendant, Stefan Kishko, had an endocrine deficiency, causing weight gain, problems walking and an undeveloped sex drive. Prosecutor Peter Taylor QC told the jury of seven men and five women. You will hear that Kishko suffered from abnormal physical development, which caused him to have no sexual urge. He was treated for this by injections. You will hear that he then developed a sex urge, but it was manifested in relation to young girls, to exposing and to masturbating. Over a period of three days, he indulged in such acts and the abduction and killing of Leslie was the climax. The prosecutor explained to jurors that 11-year-old Leslie Mulseed had been sent to the shop by her mother on Sunday, October 5th, 1975, just two days after Stefan had been given a testosterone injection. Taylor told the court, Kishko, who was in his car, saw her in the street and picked her up in his car. He drove her onto the motorway lay-by and he took the girl onto the moor and ended by stabbing her twelve times with a knife and left her dead. The motive was clearly sexual, but it was unusual not merely because of the age of the girl, but because there was no sexual interference with her or displacement of her clothes. It seems she was, to the accused, a sex object whom he required to be there while he abused himself. That completed 
he killed her and left the scene. Peter Taylor QC informed the jury that they would have to decide whether or not they believed Stefan Kishko's alibi or that he was the killer. According to the prosecutor, Stefan had come to the attention of the police due to other sexual acts relating to young girls committed during the same month Leslie was killed. On Friday, October 3rd, 1975, Stefan had been given a testosterone injection by a nurse. That night, some young girls leaving the Kingsway Youth Club said they saw a man exposing himself. The police had not found the suspect. The prosecutor told the court, It was not until December 21st that he was taken to the police station where he told officers he could not have been responsible because he was impotent and had no interest in girls. After his arrest in December of that year, the prosecutor alleged that Stefan had told the police, I talked to her in the car. Then something came over me. I go all hazy and queer when I have had my injections. It was argued that Stefan Kishko later told detectives that he had used his knife to stab Leslie Mulseed in the neck. Home Office pathologist Professor David G. testified that during the post-mortem, he concluded Leslie had sustained 12 stab wounds to her body, but there were no signs of sexual assault. The mother of a young girl who claimed someone had exposed themselves in the street said that her daughter Maxine Buckley had been hysterical afterwards. 13-year-old Maxine was asked to identify the man in court and she pointed to Stefan before bursting into tears. The court also heard from forensic scientist Ronald Outeridge, who spoke about the fibres found on Leslie's sock, skirt, vest and jumper. Outeridge had examined the fibres under a microscope and found similar fibres in a piece of carpet in Stefan Kishko's car, which indicated to him that Leslie had been a passenger. The forensic scientist said that he had also examined Stefan's knife, which the prosecution claimed was the murder weapon. The expert testified that he had received a positive chemical reaction when testing for blood, but he could not say whose blood it was. Stefan Kishko's counsel offered two somewhat contradictory defences, an alibi and not guilty by reason of diminished capacity. Stefan's barrister David Waddington QC described his client as rather strange and very immature for his age. According to Waddington, Stefan was completely dependent on his mother. The barrister told the court that witnesses had seen a man with a young girl in his car in Rochdale on the day Leslie went missing. Despite the mass of publicity, the driver never came forward. The defence argued that if it was Leslie in the car, It did not fit with the Crown's case that Stefan Kishko had killed her. On 
On July 13th, Stefan Kishko took the stand. The court heard that the defendant had retracted his confession and claimed that he had been pressured into making the admission. When he was asked why he had lied, Stefan said, During the interrogation, when I was telling what was my story, they wouldn't believe me, so I just started to tell these lies. And that seemed to please them, and the pressure was off so far as I was concerned. I thought that if I admitted some things, the police would check it out and find it to be false, and would eventually let me go home to my mother. Stefan denied telling the police that the injections made him, quote, fancy little girls, but some of his confession was read to the court in which he said, When I had this treatment, it made me go dizzy for three or four days, and then I felt a lot better, and it helps me in my sex life. Stefan told the court that all he meant was that he was able to masturbate. He explained that he had learned about his condition when he was being treated for anemia at the Manchester Royal Infirmary. When I was there, I was told I was suffering from a deficiency of male sex hormones, and this deficiency could be replaced by injections, which I agreed to have. Stefan's first injection was administered on September 11th, 1975, and the second on October 3rd, shortly before the alleged indecent exposure incident and two days before Leslie Mulseed was murdered. However, Stefan testified he had an alibi for October 5th. It was the usual sort of Sunday morning for me. I had my dinner at home at about 12 o'clock. In the afternoon, I would take my mother and aunt to the cemetery. I would normally leave at a quarter to one so as to get back home before people leave public houses because I dislike being on the roads when people are driving who have been drinking. It takes five minutes to my aunt's house and about 25 to 30 minutes to get to the cemetery. I stayed at the cemetery for about a quarter of an hour. We came back to our house plus the fact that we stopped at a continental grocer's. I went into the grocer's and bought a loaf of bread and also a jar of mustard. My aunt came for a cup of tea or coffee, and I would then take her home. The prosecutor Peter Taylor QC dismissed this account, contending that Kishko's alibi had been cooked up at a late stage. Stefan Kishko's barrister David Waddington QC called psychiatrist Dr. Barry Enoch to testify. Dr. Enoch told the court that it was true that testosterone injections could increase a man's level of aggression, but they would not cause him to be sexually attracted to children. After seven days of evidence... Mr Justice Park began summing up the case. He told the jury that it was up to the prosecution to prove that Stefan Kishko had murdered Leslie Mulseed, and jurors would have to disregard his alibi if they thought he was guilty. 
Mr Justice Park highlighted that a psychiatrist for the defence had said it was possible in a fit of uncontrollable anger the defendant may have been unable to resist killing Leslie Molseed. The judge said that the defence had suggested that Stephen Kishko was not of sound mind during the time of the killing and told the jury, if you think that, your verdict will be not guilty of murder but guilty of manslaughter. After five and a half hours of deliberation, the jury returned with a 10-2 majority verdict. Stefan Kishko was found guilty of murder. Mr Justice Park told the court that Stefan Kishko was only a man in name, not physically or mentally. He recommended that the officers who had been involved in the investigation be commended for their work and told the court, I would mention one other thing. None of us should forget the sharp eyes of Maxine Buckley that set this train of inquiry in motion. Stefan Kishko was sentenced to life in prison. In the days following the verdict and sentencing, the key witness in the case, 13-year-old Maxine Buckley, returned to school. Her mother Sheila told the Manchester Evening News that Maxine had been stalked and harassed by Stefan Kishko for weeks and he had exposed himself to her and her friends before he was arrested. Sheila said, My daughter had a nightmare life until this monster was arrested. He frightened several local girls in a campaign of terror. Once he drove slowly past our house on 14 consecutive days, and I was convinced he was out to get Maxine. Sheila said that Stefan Kishko had jumped out at Maxine on bonfire night 1975. Sheila had driven Maxine around to his house to ensure it was the same person who had exposed themselves to her before. Maxine said it was, so a report was made to the police. Sheila said, I was very annoyed at the police. At first it appeared they did not want to know. I made dozens of phone calls, and Maxine was interviewed several times. We told them where Kishko lived, but they didn't seem to take our complaint seriously. I feel they could have arrested him much sooner. Stefan Kishko's mother Charlotte did not waver when supporting her beloved son. Stefan had been transferred to Wakefield Prison, where he was kept segregated from other prisoners. However, this did not prevent him from being attacked in what was said to be retaliation for Leslie Mulseed's murder. Charlotte had petitioned everyone she could after her son's first appeal was denied. She had developed a lung condition as a direct result of working in the cotton mills for most of her life and she received a £40,000 payout in compensation. Charlotte used all of the money to further her campaign to have her son exonerated. 
After Stefan had been behind bars for a decade, Charlotte got in contact with an organisation that investigated potential wrongful convictions called Justice. Through her connections within the organisation, Charlotte spoke with a solicitor, Campbell Malone. Malone worked on Stefan's case alongside the junior council member who had worked at his trial and a private detective. In 1989, 13 years after Stefan was convicted, Campbell Malone and his co-counsel sent a petition to the Home Secretary, who happened to be the barrister who had represented Stefan at the trial, David Waddington. Two years later, the Home Office agreed to review the case, and the West Yorkshire Police began to investigate. Detective Superintendent Trevor Wilkinson led the inquiry. Officers went back to question the witnesses that had brought Stefan to the attention of the police in the first place, the then-teenage girls, one of whom the trial judge had commended after sentencing Stefan Kishko to life in prison. After 15 years, the witnesses admitted that they had been lying about what they had seen. No one had exposed themselves to them, least of all not Stefan Kishko. They admitted that they had just been going along with what their friends were saying at the time. Their statements had evolved after Stefan's arrest, and the description of the man they had claimed to have seen changed to fit Stefan's appearance. Their evidence had never been challenged at the trial, and coupled with the defence of diminished responsibility, it seemed as though Stefan's legal counsel felt that he was guilty despite his client's insistence that he was not. The evidence about a man exposing himself at the youth club two days before Leslie's murder had nothing to do with Stefan at all. A man had come forward and explained that he had been urinating near the youth club that night and had not expected anyone to see him. The defence never called him as a witness. Additionally, Stefan Kishko would not have been able to climb the steep embankment onto the moors where Leslie was killed, and witnesses who had been able to corroborate Stefan's alibi were not called to testify. The defence also never called an endocrinologist who had told the police that Stefan Kishko was infertile. The semen sample found on Leslie Molseed's clothing contained sperm heads, meaning the killer was not infertile. Worst of all, the evidence had been there all along and had not been disclosed to the defence. The officers who had been investigating the murder had noted the presence of sperm heads in the sample found on Leslie's clothing, and they knew that there were no sperm heads in Stefan's sample. In February 1992, the Court of Appeal heard that the evidence pointed to the fact that Stefan Kishko was innocent. His counsel Stephen Sedley QC told the appellate justices, This is not simply a case of lurking doubt. It is a case in which Mr Kishko can now establish his innocence. Stefan Kishko had been bailed three months earlier 
but had been admitted to a psychiatric ward for treatment of mental illnesses that had developed during his long ordeal in prison. On February 18, 1992, one of the Court of Appeal judges, Lord Lane, told the court, This man cannot have been the person responsible for ejaculating over the little girl's knickers and skirt, and consequently cannot have been the murderer. For those reasons which we have endeavoured to express as concisely as possible, this appeal must be allowed, and the conviction quashed as being unsafe and unsatisfactory. Charlotte Kishko's 16-year battle to clear her son's name was over. Oh, I just don't know. There's not any expression, but I should say, oh, I was... Happy and glad to see him coming up. And so was my sister. We were really waiting hard for the day. <laughs> Stefan had been subjected to horrific torment in prison. As he was particularly vulnerable before his arrest, his treatment after his conviction significantly damaged his mental and physical health. However, 67-year-old Charlotte was just happy to have her son back. Following his acquittal, she said, He is delighted and I am on top of the world. There is no point in being angry or bitter. Mistakes happen. All that I am anxious for now is that Stefan comes home as soon as possible and that the real murderer be found. Leslie Molseed's family were heartbroken at the revelation that her killer had not been apprehended, and they felt for Stefan and Charlotte Kishko for what they had been through. Leslie's sister Julie said at the time, This appeal has opened up all the old wounds for us. It's brought back all the memories of Leslie. She was a beautiful little girl. Now everything has got to be reopened to try and find the real killer. I have every faith that the real culprit will be caught. I just hope that over the last 16 years he has not killed anyone else. How could anyone feel about this innocent man who has spent 16 years in prison and they were not very nice to him in prison? At least his mum knows that he will come home. Our Leslie will never come home again. In the days that followed, Stefan Kishko spoke to reporters about the miscarriage of justice and what he had been through. He spoke of being scared when he signed the confession. Well, I just signed it any old hour anyway because I sort of was under the impression that his officers were going to hit me or do something violent to me in the station because they were very tall and very strong officers. Well, I was in a way framed because, you know, the detectives just said we'll just get it all wrapped up for Christmas and just end it somehow one way or another. Then age 40, Stefan described how when the legal proceedings were underway, his counsel was pushing for an admission of guilt. All that, that I was aware of at trial was that the uh, defence wanted to stop the case and just get me to plead manslaughter and diminish responsibilities. 
my action to that line of defence was that I wouldn't take it on, that I wanted it to go through with a not guilty. Stefan recounted his treatment by other prisoners and how he had been attacked. Other prisoners called me all sorts of names, but I always believed in my own innocence. The years in prison were a nightmare and a hell, to be honest. I consequently got a bash on the head with a mop handle, so I I needed 17 stitches in the head in one of the Yorkshire hospitals. Stefan voiced his hopes for the future, which included travelling and a desire to meet a partner. Sitting next to his mother and holding her hand, Stefan said, I want to see the real killer of Leslie found. He should be put behind prison bars as well and suffer the same consequences I have suffered. I feel very sorry for Leslie's family and I feel angry towards the police because of the way they have handled all of this. Mum has given me every confidence. While in prison, I had not been able to draw the strength from within myself. I had not wanted to lose my mother because of the crime of which I was convicted. Stefan Kishko and his mother tried to get back to some semblance of normality. The police held an inquiry into his case, and whether or not those involved in the original investigation had purposefully withheld information in order to strengthen their argument. Eighteen years after his arrest, and just eighteen months after his release, Stefan suffered a fatal heart attack at his mother's home in the early hours of December 23, 1993. Charlotte had been the one to find him unresponsive on his bedroom floor after hearing a loud noise. Describing how she felt and that she believed in destiny, Stefan's mother said, The funny thing is he opened all of his Christmas presents just hours before he died. I'm so glad he did. I'm not a bitter woman, but there are certain people I can never forgive for the way they treated my son. Charlotte Kishko died just over four months later. Mother and son are buried together at Rochdale Cemetery. Neither of them ever got the £500,000 in compensation Stefan was promised for his wrongful conviction, the details of which are extensively covered in the book's Delusions of Innocence by Michael O'Connell and Innocence by Jonathan Rose. One week after Charlotte Kishko's death, It was announced Detective Superintendent Dick Holland, who had played an integral role in the investigation that resulted in Stefan's conviction, and Ronald Outeridge, who had been responsible for the scientific evidence that was presented, were charged with perverting the course of justice. It was alleged that Holland and Outeridge had suppressed the results of the scientific tests performed on the semen stain found on Leslie Mulseat's clothing. The prosecution argued that the evidence would have either prevented the wrongful conviction or led to Stefan Kishko's acquittal if it had been disclosed. 
Ultimately, the case against Holland and Outeridge was dropped due to the passage of time and the likelihood that they would not receive a fair trial. Leslie Molseed's family were back at square one, and her killer had not been found. Yet. It's taken 28 years, but it could be the breakthrough that will finally solve the case. At the police incident room, the evidence is mounting up, and with the DNA profile, detectives believe that if they can find the killer, they'll have enough evidence to secure a conviction. Through technology, we now have this wonderful opportunity in relation to the DNA profile. If we can find the match to that, we will catch Leslie's killer. This is the end of episode 18. The second instalment in this two-part case will be available in three days. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. To hear ad-free versions of our episodes published several days before their general release, subscribe to They Walk Among Us Plus. Head to patreon.com forward slash They Walk Among Us or search for They Walk Among Us on Apple Podcasts to learn more. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.